Well, I've shaken hands with about two-thirds of you this morning. I just have a hard time getting all the way around, but good morning. Welcome to Chapel Hill. We're so glad that you made the worship of the Lord on this Sabbath day your priority. Thanks for being here, and I'll bet you're already glad. I trust by the time we're done, uh, you will be renewed in that conviction. We are in the middle of a, a series that we're calling Instagram Jesus. This is a journey through the Gospel of Mark, the fast-paced Gospel of Mark, And what we talked about last week is that when you're listening to Mark, you're actually not listening to Mark at all. You're listening to the reminiscences, the reflections of whom? Remember? Peter, St. Peter. This is really the the gospel according to Peter. And uh, and if you'll recall, Peter could sometimes be a little bit hasty, sometimes dash in without necessarily thinking about it completely. So there's this kind of a little bit frantic element to, to Peter's life. So it shouldn't be too surprising to, to us that some of those qualities present themselves in the Gospel of Mark, too. He moves along at a pretty frantic pace. He doesn't always include all of the details that we might find in uh, some of the other Gospels. But if you want to get right to the point, then Mark's your guy. In fact, one of his favorite words I taught you last week, what is that word? Immediately, euthus, immediately, 41 times in the gospel and, and 10 or 11 times in the very first chapter of the gospel. So when you are reading along and you hear that word immediately, just smile. And imagine that it's Peter in the background who is blasting through his story so quickly that Mark can hardly keep up writing down the stories that he gives to them, okay? Immediately is a wonderful reflection of the, of the personality of the guy who's behind this gospel. And it certainly carries it along in a rapid sort of pace. This morning, on the heels of his baptism and on the heels of his temptation in the wilderness... We uh, now come to the first and the foundational act of Jesus' ministry. And it might surprise you to discover what that is. So we come to the shores of Galilee this morning. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me. And I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. And they were in their boat mending nets. Immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Next fall, I'm going to be leading my 10th trip to uh, Israel. Many of you are joining me. There's still a little room left. If you'd like to, it will change the way you read Scripture forever. But I, I still recall my very first journey to Israel, 35 years ago. It was, an, it was really an overload experience. I remember Masada visit very, very powerfully, uh, standing on the top of that mesa that was so historical. Of course, Jerusalem itself is just sensory overload. Standing on the the steps of the temple, the very steps upon which Jesus would have stood and walked. Or, or, Or standing before the pool of Bethesda, which... Until a few years ago, some people didn't think existed, thought it was a fab, uh, just a creation of the gospel writer John, and yet there it is, and it's exactly as he described it. Or sitting in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, surrounded by 
2,000-year-old olive trees, olive trees that were sprouts at the time that Jesus was praying, doing battle with the devil in that, in that place. It was spectacular. It was spectacular. But I have to say that the most significant spiritual moment for me took place 80 miles north of that on the Sea of Galilee. It was the first morning that we arrived in Jerusalem or in Israel, and I was jet lagged like crazy, and so I got up quite early and I, I walked down to the shore of Galilee uh, to take in the the sunrise uh, on the opposite side of the of the lake. And while I was there, I noticed that two fishermen had gotten into a boat and they rowed themselves out to their favorite fishing site, and they cast out their circular nets onto the water. And then they began to make noise, beating on the boat and other things in order to scare the fish into their trap. And as I stood there watching that, drinking all of that in, I was just transported back in time. Jerusalem has been conquered and destroyed and rebuilt so many times that today the streets that you stand on, many of them will be 80 feet higher than the streets upon which Jesus would have walked when I was standing on that shore, when I was looking across those waters, I knew that I was standing on pebbles that Jesus had stood on. I was looking at waters that Jesus had walked on. And as I said, I was transported back in time, particularly as I paid attention to these fishermen who were plying their trade in a way not very different from what would have happened 2,000 years ago in the story that we just heard about. This account is the foundational story of Jesus' ministry. It is the starting point for him. He doesn't start with a great mass teaching on a hillside somewhere. He doesn't start with terrific miracles. He doesn't start by the casting out of evil spirits. All of those things are coming right around the corner immediately, as a matter of fact. But that's not where he starts. What he starts with is the invitation of four to four fishermen to follow him, to join him. Jesus is about to call his first disciples. And these men are going to absolutely change the world. The disciples of Jesus still are in the business of changing their world. And so I want to use this as an opportunity, as I said in my my bulletin letter to you, I want to use this as a chance just to, to do a little spiritual assessment. If I were to say, how many of you consider yourself to be disciples of Jesus? I suspect many of you would raise your hands. Well, I would love for you to use this moment to kind of assess your understanding of discipleship as compared to Jesus' understanding of discipleship. Because in the text that we just read, he actually gives us a very terse, very succinct, very pithy, all typically Mark qualities, description of discipleship. In your worship folder, you'll find an insert. I'd like you to pull it out. Grab yourself a pen as well, if you would. And I'd like this just to be a little, a, a, a little a tool for you to use as you're thinking through the definition that Jesus gives us of what it means to be a disciple. I'd like you to use this as a tool to say, okay, where am I really? Not with what I think it means to be a follower of Jesus, but what Jesus says is a follower of Jesus. Where am I with that? And then you'll see there's some opportunities for you to take some next steps. And we'll talk about those later on in the message. So here we go. Here are the three defining points of what it means to be a follower of, a disciple of Jesus Christ. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Mark 1.17, say it with me. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. 
You've heard those words since Sunday school, so this is nothing new to you, but perhaps we'll take a different look at it, because really, in the three phrases there, we find a Jesus definition of discipleship. Follow Jesus, be transformed by Jesus, and be on mission with Jesus. Follow Jesus, be transformed by Jesus, be on mission with Jesus. Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. So first of all, follow me. I'll bet many of you would agree when I say that my teen years were not easy. Uh, Perhaps you would say the same. And part of it was because I was a year younger than every other person in my class. And so I was a year behind in my physical growth, a year behind in my maturity. All things that make uh, their teen years a little less hellish. I I needed a dose of self-confidence and my folks decided that one way to do that might be to put me into a karate class. And so I joined a class of youth in karate that was taught by a man named Morris Mack. Morris was a a big man, a strong man, a gifted and capable uh, leader, and, uh, and, uh, and he had a lot of confidence. And he filled me with confidence, as it turns out. The more I spent time with him, the more I saw myself through his eyes. I called him sensei, which means master in Japanese. I bowed to him, which is the way that you defer, that you show respect to one another in that culture. Uh, And of course, because he was my sensei, I did what he told me to do because I wanted to earn my black belt, which I did when I turned 16. Um, Morris, as it turns out, I saw him to be a man of both great strengths and weaknesses. The older I got, the more I realized that. But for the eight years that I was there before I moved away from home, he was, I followed him, and he helped to shape my life in some ways that still impact me to this day and for which I am grateful. These four fishermen are about to become the disciples of the greatest master who ever lived. And it all began with those simple words, follow me, follow me, follow me. Now, there was nothing unusual about rabbis having disciples in that day. In fact, Judaism was a a culture of great education and tradition, and and one of the best ways to learn all that, to be inculcated into that, was to attach yourself to a rabbi. So that was very common. Here's what was not common about what took place in this story. The rabbis never did the asking. It was always the students who did the asking. They were the supplicants who would come to the, there would be rabbi hoping to become his protege and waiting for a yes or no from him. What Jesus did here was really unheard of because he was the one who did the asking. He came and said, will you follow me? That was the first act of his ministry. And I think it's really important for us just to pause a moment and look at the theological significance of that in our own lives. Because our relationship with Jesus Christ always begins with his call to us. We, we like to think, as Americans particularly, that I decided to follow Jesus. I made the decision for Christ. We didn't decide nothing until God had already decided for us. It was God's idea to call us, God's idea to save us, God's idea to send his son to us, God's idea to be restored in relationship with us. If you are a disciple of Jesus or if you've contemplated being a disciple of Jesus, it is only because you heard the Holy Spirit saying to you, whatever you are doing with your life, I can do better. 
I value you. I love you. I created you. I know stuff you don't know. And if you will let me, I can transform you into the person I created you to be. Follow me. That is the initiating act of every person who ever claims the name of Jesus. So let's just pause there for a moment. Are you indeed a follower of Jesus Christ? And you might say, duh, yes, but, but not so quick. Because many claim to be followers of Jesus and are not. They are fans. They're not followers. They are fans. They're not followers. This is true today. It was true 2,000 years ago. Think about it. Thousands of people in the Gospels were attracted to Jesus, to his power, his teaching, his charisma, his presence. And the more his fame spread, the more people wanted a piece of him. At one point, At one point, as we will see, the streets of Capernaum were so packed out with his fans that some guys who wanted to get to him had to hack a hole in the roof of the host in whose house Jesus was preaching. I'm sure that he really appreciated that. (coughs) Jesus had a ton of fans, and he still does. People who find him fascinating. People who find him inspiring. People who want or need something from him. People who will obey him. As long as it isn't too inconvenient. As long as it isn't too costly. As you watch the Gospels unfold, things start out with a bang. Everybody is on the Jesus bandwagon. And then he starts to get up in their business. His teaching starts to sting. He calls them to sacrifice. He says some things that irritate them. And the crowds begin to fade away. In fact, at one point, Jesus, as he's watching his departing fans, turns to his disciples and say, what about you? Will you leave me too? Will you leave me too? Jesus didn't say, cheer for me, be intrigued by me, brag that you've met me, Facebook friend me. He said, what? Follow me. Trust me. Believe that I have your best interests in heart. Believe that I know more than you do about you. Believe it even when it is unpopular or hard or costly. And one of the tests as to whether you are a follower of Jesus is answering this simple question. Is Jesus first in my life? Is he more important to me than anything? More important to me than my wealth, than my career, than my reputation, than my friends, than my hobbies? More important to me than my family, my children. More important to me than my spouse. When Jesus called the, the four, immediately we are told that they, walk, they walked away from everything that mattered to them. They walked away from their boats, their nets, their businesses. Even more remarkably, they walked away from father in a patriarchal society that was almost unheard of. They walked away from friends, from colleagues. Now here's the deal. As it turned out, Jesus gave it back to them and more. He promised that he would. But the starting point for discipleship is always this. You have to decide whether or not you trust Jesus more than you trust everything that you have. And I'm not saying it's easy. I love my wife. I'm sitting with her today. She said, today would you just sit with me in church because I've been moving all over the place. By the way, I've noticed you've still been doing that. and That's great. Keep it up. Mix it up a little bit. But she said, today will you sit with me? I said, I'd love to. So... I love my wife. I love sitting with her in church. I love my kids. I love my job. I like my IRA. 
But to follow Jesus means that I'm willing to say, as much as I love these things, following Jesus must be the priority of my life. And if you're not in willing, willing to entrust everything to Jesus, then you're probably a fan, but not a follower. Now, before you start feeling overwhelmed about how you become that kind of a person, let me quickly turn to part two of the definition, because Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you become. This is a very encouraging part, because it's about our life transformation. It's about life change, and there are two really important things that come out in this very terse little phrase. First of all, it is Jesus who does the changing. He says, follow me, and I will make you become. Being a disciple is not about me making myself better, about me behaving myself. It is about Jesus making me into that which he wants me to be. And what a relief that is. Being a Christian is not about me getting my act together. Being a Christian is about Jesus getting my act together. Notice this also. It is a process. You probably learned this word differently. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men, right? That's probably how you heard it. But that's not a good interpretation of the Greek. The Greek word actually says, follow me and I will make you become. The other one sounds like it's instantaneous. Presto, change, oh, zap. Suddenly, you're a new, new person. But Jesus said, I will make you become. In other words, I'm going to take you where you are right now. And if you trust me, bit by bit, step by step, I'm going to shape you into the person that I created you to be. The Apostle Paul says that we are changed from one degree of glory to another. One degree. To one degree of glory to another. If you're a true disciple of Jesus, he is going to be changing you. And we need to decide whether we want to participate with that. I was talking to a longtime professional friend of mine who recently made for him the courageous step to walk through the doors of Celebrate Recovery. He tells me that he, when he walked in, he was looking over his shoulders, trying to see if anyone was going to be looking at him and wondering why he was there and what thing would, would drive him to be there that night. He was so nervous. But he said he discovered what a life-giving place it could be for him. He told me, quote, I have never felt so unjudged, never been in a place where my brothers are so fearlessly honest. It is liberating. And he tells me he still now, when he walks in, he still looks around each week to see if someone will notice him. But now it's because he is proud to be seen there and wants to be able to speak to that. God is using CR to transform this man. A true disciple of Jesus is being changed. Is being transformed by the Spirit of Christ, bit by bit. You may not notice it yourself, but as you look back, or often as others look at you, they will say, Wow, you are different. You are, and then you can fill in the blank. Gentler, kinder, more generous, more courageous, more friendly, more faithful than you used to be. Can you say that of yourself? If you could take a look at your spiritual snapshot from where you are right now versus the one-year-ago you or the five-year-ago you, could you, would you say, you know, I'm a different person. God is shaping me. God is, is, is moving me towards what he wants me to be. He's transforming me. If you can, good news. You're a disciple of Jesus, and he's in the business of transforming your life. If you can't say that, if you are kind of clinging to who you are and happy about it, then that might need some attention. Follow me, and I will make you become. And then we see the third, fishers of men. 
The mission of Jesus Christ, he told us, was to seek and to save the lost. I come to seek and to save the lost. And when you think about the parables that he taught, you realize that he reinforced this again and again and again with one image after another of seeking lost things. Luke 15 is the preeminent chapter that deals with lostness. The lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son. And he has images of a woman sweeping out her house to find that one lost coin. Of, of a shepherd who's willing to leave behind 99 sheep to find the lost one and return it to safety. Of the father who with great inelegance runs towards his prodigal son who has finally returned because he is so happy to have him home. All of these images are of seeking and saving the lost. And Jesus begins his call to his disciples by saying, I want to make you fishers of men. The skills, the gifts, the instincts that you have, I want to apply them to the work of fishing for those who are swimming aimlessly in this life. If you are a follower of Jesus and not just a fan, if you are allowing Christ and his spirit in you to transform you, then Jesus wants to plug you into his mission to save lost people. And may I just say, this is a mission that we are seeking to reclaim as as a church. We are reclaiming this priority as a church. And I will tell you, it's all your fault. You are the ones who responded to our Beyond These Walls initiative with more passion and generosity and enthusiasm than ever before. You were the ones who told us that you wanted to be more concerned about those outside of the church. And we in leadership began to listen to your hearts. And we realized that indeed we had become more concerned about caring for those within our walls and less concerned about seeking the lost outside of our walls. Lots of churches start out on mission with Jesus to seek the lost and they end up in a maintenance mode where they are more focused on themselves, caring for themselves, keeping themselves happy than they are on others. And this had begun to happen to us. That is what your elders, your session realized about a year ago. We had lost the fire in our bellies to reach lost people, and there are thousands of them around us. We were happy if they came and they joined us, as long as it didn't require much in the way of change on our part. But we had become passive. We were hoping that the fish would just jump into our boat instead of doing the hard work of casting our nets to catch them and draw them in. Beloved, we are fishing again. We are fishing again. And so if things feel a little different to you, maybe even a little scary to you, that might be why. Because your leaders, your elders and pastors feel like we took our eye off the ball. We stopped caring as much about fishing for lost souls as Jesus cares about it. We were out of balance and we are trying to get back into balance. Now, this does not mean that we do not care for those who are in the boat. Part of being in the family of God is that we care for each other. It just means that we don't mostly or only focus on taking care of each other. So one of the ways that you can join Jesus in fishing for lost souls is to understand what I just said. And to be persuaded by it, that it matters. It might mean, then, tolerating some changes that you don't prefer Because lost people matter more than your individual preferences. It might mean having mercy on me and my team when we make mistakes in trying to do new things to reach lost people. 
Or it might mean just a willingness to change your heart a little bit, change your attitude a little bit, change your conversations a little bit. And all of that would be meaningful and a helpful way for us to become more fishers of lost people. It's passive, but it's powerful. A change of heart, change of attitude, change of conversation. It's passive, but it's powerful. Let Jesus do that. Or you could go crazy. You could actually become a fisher. You could sign up for Alpha next time. You could come and experience what it means to share your faith with those who have no faith. When was the last time that you did that? When was the last time that you shared your faith with those who have no faith? I spoke this last week with a man who was leading a table in Alpha. And he was brimming with joy about what fun it was. And what was going on in Alpha and this, the changes that were taking place. Turns out it is fun to fish. Follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. That is his definition of discipleship. So as you look at your card, as that little insert that I gave you, how do you assess yourself? What does the blood work reveal? Are you a follower of Jesus or a fan? Are you allowing Christ to transform you or are you pretty content with yourself just the way you are? Are you engaged in the mission of Jesus to reach the lost or honestly could you care less? We are all about next steps as a church One degree of glory to another, one step after another. That's what this is about. And so you'll find this in the insert. So maybe as you're looking at the follow me section, you say, I'm not sure that I'm not just a fan. And so maybe that means for you, I'm going to try Alpha. I I need to learn more about this faith that I claim. Maybe it means I've got to be baptized. I've got to proclaim my faith publicly and receive baptism. Maybe uh, on the issue of, of transformation, you're realizing I've been just kind of sitting the way I am. I've been pretty static in my spiritual life. You need to make some changes. Maybe it's time for you to finally join a life group. You've heard us talking about it forever, and you've resisted forever. Maybe it's time to stop resisting. We still believe that's the prime way that we create disciples is in small communities. Or maybe it would be for you to step into CR. And maybe your issue is not alcohol like David. Maybe your issue is fear. Maybe your issue is anger. Maybe your, your, your issue is judgmentalism. Maybe that would be a place for you to allow the Spirit to begin to transform you. And maybe you would say, I, I'm a follower of Jesus. I feel like he's changing me, but I am not a good fisher. And so maybe for you, it would be coming to the next Alpha or coming to the Alpha training and learning what it means to speak about your faith to others who are hungry and invite them in. We're going to have a song following the service, or following this sermon. It'll be a chance for you just to pray and to reflect on that. And I would love to invite you to pick one next step that might be your next step as the Spirit prompts you. Write down your name, your email address, and then you're going to find purple baskets at every entrance. On the way out the door, just drop those in there. You don't even have to remember anything because we will contact you when the next thing is appropriate. We'll reach out to you. But I long for us to be a church that epitomizes, that accepts, that receives the definition of discipleship as it was given to us by the Lord Jesus. Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for decades of outreach into the community. I thank you that thousands of people have heard about you, and perhaps that many have come to know you in a new way or in a deeper way. So Lord, I I speak that as a pastor who is full of gratitude for being part of this mission. But I pray, God, that 
this thing that you have stirred in us among the elders and the pastors of the church, I pray that this fire will take hold and that we will reclaim once again our heritage as fishers of men and women and children. That we will care as much for those outside of our walls as we care for those inside. That we will care as much for reaching the lost and who don't even know they're lost as we do caring for those who have been found. God, you are the one that will help us to find that balance. You will be the one who helps us to have the courage to take the steps necessary to do that. You'll be the one who changes our hearts so that we see differently about this and are willing to defer some of the things that matter so deeply. So God, this is what we want. We don't want just to be a a bastion of the saved. We want to be a, a rescue mission for the lost too. And would you accomplish that first of all in the changed heart of every person this day who heard your word and was touched by your spirit. We ask it in the name of our master. Amen.